Have you ever belonged somewhere? Have you ever had a place where you could be completely vulnerable and not have to worry about it? Have you ever belonged to a group of people that you didn't have to put on airs to impress, but they would just embrace you for, for being you and would allow you to take a deep breath from having to have the facade up all the time, all of the fake smiles and all of the I'm fines? Have you ever been a part of a group of people where you would be missed if you weren't there, where you would be recognized if you didn't show up? Have you ever really belonged somewhere? The truth is, I think that's what all of us are looking for. You find the loneliest hermit in all of Alaska, and even he would say, I want to belong to somebody. I want to belong to somewhere. God built us for belonging. God built us for connecting. God built us that we might go deep with one another and might know one another and might be missed by somebody and loved by people and invested in people. In the 1980s sitcom Cheers, the theme song goes like this. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Would you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. You want to go where people know people are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Brothers and sisters, I ask us this morning, are we going to love better than cheers? Are we going to love one another more than a group of people wandering into a bar? Are we willing to go deep with one another, know the names of one another, and care for one another, and miss one another, and allow us to, to bring all of the worries of life, and all of the struggles of life, and all of the difficulties of life, and all of the mountaintops of life, and bring them and let us pile them onto each other? Are we willing to be there, brothers and sisters? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Where we pick up in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uh, is in the midst of a number of exhortations that he's giving to the Ephesian church. So if you have your Bible, stand with me. And we will read God's word together. Ephesians, that's after the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 15 together. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But it be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. May God bless the reaching and the preaching of his word this morning. So when we come to Ephesians chapter 5, 
Paul has just, right before verse 15, exhorted the Ephesian Christians to go out into the midst of the darkness. He's taking the charge that Jesus had given as he sends his sheep to live among the wolves, to go among the wolves and to minister to the wolves and to help transform the wolves into sheep. And so Paul has exhorted them, as light, go into the midst of the darkness. As light, pursue the darkness. Step into the darkness. Embrace the darkness. Go to the darkness. So that you might illuminate the world there. So that you might illuminate the wickedness there. So that you might illuminate the sinfulness there. So that you might illuminate the human heart. That the blind eyes might see that they need Christ. But, as you go... As you step into this dangerous world, as you walk out as a sheep among wolves, be careful. Be careful. Look carefully where you step. Every step in a wolf-eaten world is treacherous and dangerous. And there is danger lingering around every corner. Be vigilant in these war times. Because every step you take could end up on top of a landmine that takes your leg off. This is a general preparing the troops for battle. This is a general calling them to to come together as they fight against kingdoms and principalities and cosmic powers together. He's calling them to unity. He's calling them to commitment. He's rallying them around the mission. See, where we come to this morning, what Paul is saying, is he's saying, because the days are evil, Because of the world that we have, because of the urgency of the message with which we take, because of the danger that is lurking around every treacherous corner, you must have spirit-filled maturity. And you must have one another. I ask us this morning, as we walk in these dark days, as we walk in an increasingly hostile culture, As we navigate life and navigate the treacherous minefields that await us on enemy ground here in this fallen world. Do we have the maturity to stand firm? Do we have the filling of the spirit that we might stand with resolve in these days? And are we together? Are we together brothers and sisters? Are we shoulder to shoulder linked so that you can't even see a crack of light in between? Are we shoulder to shoulder, brothers and sisters, that the enemy might not find a weak link to exploit? Are we unified? Are we together? Are we in the trenches, arm in arm, back to back, side to side, pressing on into enemy ground? See, it's in this context that he gives us the words that we have this morning. It's in the context of this battle, it's in the context of these difficult days that Paul is speaking into our church this morning. See, I want to focus the majority of our time this morning on verses 18 through 21. But you can't understand 18 and 21 unless you see that all of this is in light of the difficult days in which we find ourselves. So when we come into verse 18, Paul gives us essentially two commandments. One positive and one negative. Negatively, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. In other words, do not give up your senses. Do not weaken your alertness. Do not weaken your your wisdom. Do not lower your discernment and your understanding of the world. Do not limit your faculties in any way. Instead, 
be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit come into you. So what we have here is we come into Ephesians 5 is we have a comparison contrast, right? A comparison contrast between drunkenness with wine and the filling of the Spirit. Now when we think about how these two compare with one another, it doesn't seem obvious at first, but there is a way that they compare. That they, and if, in fact, it's actually a comparison made numerous times in, in the scriptures. As we see, even on the day of Pentecost, the, the apostles have to come out and say, hey, we ain't drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. We ain't started drinking yet. We're good. We are filled with the Spirit, right? Now, what is the similarity between drunkenness and Spirit filling? It's influence, right? It's influence. If we have someone that we see drunk or see, if there is someone that we see driving drunk, how, how do we describe that? They are driving under the influence. When we see someone acting a fool and acting completely not like themselves and saying things that they ordinarily wouldn't say, what would we say if we know that they are drunk with wine or drunk with alcohol? We would say they are just under the influence of alcohol. It's the same for the Spirit. The Spirit does what, in a similar way, influences our actions, influences our judgment, influences our approach. Just as alcohol, drunkenness with alcohol, makes you somebody that you ordinarily cannot be or are not, so does the Spirit. The Spirit influences us. In a life under the Spirit, in a life under the influence of the Spirit, will be completely otherworldly. It will be utterly different than you normally are, living differently than you normally would live, making decisions other than you would normally make. So just as we are, just as alcohol influences us to the negative, the Spirit influences us to the positive. Both of them alter our behavior. Both of them alter our thinking. Both of them alter our worldview. Both of them alter the way that we live out this life. But the comparison ends there. Then begins the contrast. To help me understand this, uh, I read something that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant preacher of the early 20th century, and he was also a medical doctor. And so the way Dr. Lloyd-Jones frames all of this up is he says, you know, if you read any pharmacology book, you read any medical understanding of alcohol, and you realize that alcohol is a depressant, that alcohol depresses the mind, alcohol depresses the faculties, Alcohol depresses the judgment and depresses self-control. In other words, alcohol depresses all of those things that make a man his sharpest, that make a man his broadest, that allows him to think his clearest. So much so that if a man is to be drunk with alcohol and is living and has abused alcohol, then he doesn't become more of a man. Instead, he becomes more of a beast. He becomes, begins to live more as an animal would live and behave more as an animal would behave. Indulging his lust, indulging the cravings of his flesh, just doing whatever comes natural, not thinking clearly, showing no discernible judgment. So Paul is saying, reject that. Reject that way of living. Reject the way of living that lowers you in your humanity. Reject that way of living that, that leads you to the indulgence of your flesh. Reject that way of living that lowers your ability to, to have, make wise, discernible, cautious, prudent, sober decisions. 
Instead, he says, the opposite. Be the opposite. Be spirit-filled. So, obviously, the spirit is not a drug. But if it were, the way that we would classify it in a pharmacology book would not be as a depressant, but as a stimulant. As a stimulant. That the spirit does not depress the mind and depress the judgment and depress self-control and depress the faculties. Instead, the spirit stimulates all of those things. The spirit allows you to think more sharply and clearly than you've ever been able to think before. The spirit imparts wisdom to you that you would not be able to have in any other way. A wisdom that comes only from the Lord. The Spirit stimulates your mind to worship and your heart to passion. The Spirit brings not fear, not, not fear, but courage. It brings not lack of self-control, but self-discipline. The Spirit does all of those things in complete opposite. It is the polar opposite in every way. In fact, as John Stott says, if, the, if drunkenness makes us more like a beast, then it is the Spirit that makes us more human, including, in, in fact, Pushing us toward perfect human maturity as it is making us more like Christ. Who was the fullest human to have ever lived. The most beautifully human to have ever lived. And so what he is saying is reject a life under the influence of the world. Reject a life under the influence of something that is going to lead you toward destruction. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. You see the difference here. Is at stake is whether or not your life is going to end up wrapped around a telephone pole. Or if it's going to be under the influence of the one who secures your joy and offers it to you in a way that can't change. The difference here is a life destroyed or a peace enjoyed. Look, drunkenness is fun in the moment. People don't get drunk because being drunk makes them miserable. People get drunk because drunkenness in the moment is enjoyable. And drunkenness in the moment is fun. And drunkenness in the moment allows you to put away worries and put down all of the discretion that you have. So that you're not worrying about all these things anymore. But eventually drunkenness wraps itself around a telephone pole. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, I ask us who we want to be. Who we want to be. Do we want to be people under the influence of the world? Do we want to be people under the influence, having our faculties lowered? Or do we want to be people filled with the Spirit, pursuing God feverishly with everything that we've got, going after Him that we might know our lives even more fully, might enjoy His peace even more truly? See, I want us to be Spirit-filled, brothers and sisters. I want, if we can't say anything else about Iron City Baptist Church, let us say that Iron City Baptist Church is a spirit-filled church. Let it be said of us that Iron City Baptist Church is a church under the influence of the Spirit, leaning into the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. See, this is what maturity is. We, we talk about our vision as a church. And the first half of our vision as a church is that we would be maturing disciples. What is maturity? What is Christian maturity? It is being filled ever more so with the Holy Spirit. It is more and more and more having your life submitted to the leadership of the Spirit. More and more and more being led in the direction by the Spirit. More and more and more having your faculties and your reason and your wisdom and your discernment and your worldview be shaped 
by the Spirit through the church and through His Word. That's what I'm calling us to. Now, what Paul gives us in the three verses that follow in 19, 20, and 21 is Paul then gives us the result of being filled by the Spirit. Paul says, all right, don't be drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, this is what it looks like. How is it that we can know if we are a Spirit-filled church? How is it that we can know if we are Spirit-filled, maturing Christians? How is it that we can know? Well, Paul is going to tell us that. But I don't think it stops there. I think the way that we should see these is not only are these the results of being spirit-filled, not only are these the evidences of being spirit-filled, but these are also the means that the Spirit uses to continue filling you. So he, these are the evidences, these are the fruits, and then at the same time, as you live these out and as you experience these, the Spirit then uses them to continually and more so fill you with the Spirit. All right? So let's look at these. I want to look at them first. We see three of them, but I want to see first of it from the big picture. You'll notice in verses 19 through 21 that there are two relationships present all the way through. He says, first, to sing to one another about God. Then he says, be thankful to God for one another. Then he says, submit to one another because you submit to Christ or because you revere Christ. So in each of these three verses, we have these two coinciding relationships. We have first our relationship with our Heavenly Father, our relationship with God. Then we have our relationship with one another. Both of those, those relationships are seen throughout. See, what I want you to understand is that the two great commandments, to love God with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul, and to love one another, or to love your neighbor as yourself, and even as a subcategory under that, what Jesus says in John 13, to love one another so that the world might recognize us, that those two commandments are inextricably locked, that they always go together, that you always, if you love God, will love one another, and loving one another should enhance your relationship with God. Now, those relations, no, we know that one of them is greater than the other, right? We understand that. Let's not be confused on that. There is a reason that we call it the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. That our love for God is a transcendent love. A love that is greater than any other love than we can know. A love that is so great, in fact, that Jesus says, in comparison to all other loves, it will look like hatred. But. The transcendent love that we have for God only builds and encourages a committed love for one another. So we have this transcendent love for the God on high and a committed love for one another, those that, that God has saved, those that are a part of God's family, and they come together to form this one beautiful picture. You see, what I want us to understand this morning is as a church, the nearer we draw to God, the nearer we will draw to one another. You hear me? The nearer we draw to God, the nearer we will draw to one another. For all of you who have been unfortunate enough to be a part of my premarital counseling, we always draw the same thing on the whiteboard, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. On the whiteboard, we'll draw a triangle, right? And we'll talk about these three primary relations, or these two primary relationships that we have in our life. The relationship that we have with God and the relationship that we have with one another. 
And so you start at the bottom triangle. You have God obviously at the top, the transcendent love. And on each side you have the husband and the wife. And the picture that I'm trying to drive home into their minds is, is that the closer the husband gets to God and the closer the wife gets to God, as they move up the the sides of that triangle toward the pinnacle of worship, the closer they are to one another. That the closer you get to God, the closer those sides come together on the triangle. This is the picture for us as the church. This is the picture for us as the church. That if we are going to truly love God, part of that is going to be loving one another. Part of that is going to be being committed to one another. You see, we love, one, we, we love God in a way that causes us to love one another. But then when we love one another, it only influences and enhances and increases our love for God. That those commandments are inextricably locked and linked together. If you go to the trenches of any battlefield, what is it that keeps men there? I have never been. Some of you have. But from everything I've ever been told, by people that I love, by things that I've read, by things that I've seen, is it is the most horrific place on God's earth. It is perhaps the clearest evidence of fallenness and sinfulness that can be manifested on this planet. So what keeps men there? What keeps men in a hole where bullets are flying over their heads? What keeps men in a place where at any time a mortar could come and blow them to another planet? It's always two things. One is the commitment and passion they have for the great cause for which they're fighting. And two is their love for the man beside them. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater cause. There is no greater commitment. There is no greater mission than the cross that we have embraced. There is no greater commission. There is no greater cause that we could champion than to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the places in which it is hostily received. There is no greater cause for us to go. But if we need another, we have one another. We are in the trenches together. We are in the foxhole together. We are shoulder to shoulder. We need one another. We need one another. If we're going to persevere, if we're going to endure, if we're not going to get weary in the midst of this battle and lay back, if we're not going to run in cowardice, we're going to need one another to spur each other on in this battle, to spur each other on in this mission, to pick one another up, to dust one another off, to clean one another's wounds. We're going to need the encouragement that we have sitting in the chairs beside us. We're going to need the encouragement that comes in a meal, from a meal from our ladies in the midst of a tragic loss. We're going to need hospital visits when our little girl gets sick and we don't really have a good answer for it. We're going to need it when our son gets cancer way too young. We're going to need it. We're going to need it as our kids go through the ups and downs of the adolescent years. We're going to need it as they step into college and feel like they're the only ones that care anything about Jesus or the glory of God. 
They're going to need it. We're going to need it. We need need one another. The cause is great. That is understood. The cause transcends all of this. But by brothers and sisters, we need each other too. And so moving out of this big picture, Paul then begins to get a little more concrete for us. Paul begins to get a little more concrete. He's saying, this is what it will look like if you are spirit-filled. If you are a spirit-filled church, this is what you're going to see. The first thing that we see is that if we are spirit-filled, we will worship God with one another. We will worship God with one another. You see this in verse 19. It says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I apologize for my voice. My Taking some medicine, my mouth's a little dry. Yeah, that's weird when you're in front of 300 people. You just roll with it, you know? You just roll with it. So, so it's talking about worship and how we're worshiping with one another. But even more specifically, it's talking about singing. It's talking about singing. Now, I understand worship to be much more than singing. Well, I, I believe right now, as I'm preaching God's word, I am in the midst of worship. I believe when you're faithfully doing your job, whatever that is, to God's glory, it's an act of worship. Whenever you open your Bible at home to read, it's an act of worship. Whenever you tell your children about Jesus, it's an act of worship. But specifically, talking about worship in this context, we're talking about worshiping through song, worshiping through singing. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. But Christians have always been singing people. Christians have always been singing people. As a matter of fact, there has been no group of people in the history of the world that has ever been more dedicated to music and more committed to singing than Christians. The great music that all of us enjoy, most of the advances came through the Christian church. Why is that? We have a God worth singing about. We are more committed to singing because nobody's got a God like we've got. Nobody's got a Savior like we've got. Nobody's got a cross like we've got. Nobody's got a mission like we've got. And words just won't do. Mere prose just won't do. We can't just say things. We have to say them beautifully for our God. We can't just write things. We need to write them poetically for, the, for our God. The gospel has put us, placed a new song in our hearts, and we are compelled to sing it because of the joy and peace that it brings us. We are a singing people because God has placed a song there. You know, you can tell a lot about a church by the way she sings. Certainly singing can be faked. Certainly singing can be performed. You can tell a lot about a church by the way she sings. You can talk, tell about the awe of God that they have. You can tell about the joy in the Lord that they have. You can tell about the depth of God that they want. You can tell about the yearning of their hearts, the passion of their life, the commitment of their devotion by the way that they sing. You can hear it in their voices. There is nothing, nothing, nothing more beautiful than hearing the entire congregation as a great and glorious choir joining with everything that is happening in heaven. I hope that when people come in here, when guests walk into Iron City, they don't stand beside people who are cold. And hollow and quiet. 
okay that some of us are built quiet. It's okay. I'm not. Can you imagine? That's okay if you are. My wife is built quiet. It is not okay if we do not, are not filled and overflowing with a song for the glory of God that just pours out of us in a time that is not like us. Remember, being spirit-filled is being someone other than who you are. He influences you, right? He moves you. But the interesting thing to me about verse 19 is not that it's about singing. It's about who the singing is addressed to. There's two audiences, right? Then the first one makes sense, or it's actually the second one in the text, but it makes sense to us. It says that we are to make a melody in our hearts to God. In other words, we are to, to make a melody in that place of us that you can't hear. That in that place that is silent. That place that only God sees. That place in which, which, which he sees and is either honored by or dishonored by. That we're to have a song there that makes melody to him. That he, he sees the passion of it and he sees the joy of it and he sees the peace that it is bringing. But the second audience that's mentioned is surprising to me. And, and, and for me, this just flips your whole understanding of what worship and, and church worship and uh, all, is all supposed to look like. Because how does he start? He says, addressing whom? One another. One another. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That we're singing and there's two audiences. Now I know we live where the theme of modern Christian music has been to an audience of one, but that's over-spiritualized and it's not biblical. We are to sing to two audiences. Now again, going back to our relationship, one of those is transcendent, right? One of those is the greater audience is always the glory of God. But the second audience is not inconsequential. That one of the reasons that we sing, one of the reasons that we praise God out loud is so that one another might be encouraged. So that our church family might be enhanced. In other words, what Paul is saying, I believe, is Paul is saying, don't just sing in your heart. You must sing in your heart. Your heart must be filled with worship. It can't be faked. It can't just be a performance. It can't just be about what people see or what people hear or what people think. It can't just be about that. It must come out of your heart, but it can't just be in your heart. That we have a responsibility to sing and to praise and to worship God in such a way that it increases and enhances the, wor the worship of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we have a responsibility to enhance one another's worship by the way that we sing, by the way that we praise, by the way that we demonstrate the passion that we have in the midst of whatever circumstances are happening. See, what this comes down to is it's about love. That's what the two commandments are all about, right? They're about love. This comes down to whether or not your heart is truly filled with a love for God. And your singing comes down to whether or not your heart is truly filled with a love for your church family. Why is it that God has us gathered together to sing? Why is it that God has us sing out loud? What is the point of all of this? Why can't we just hang out in a tree stand and sing in our hearts? Why can't we just chill in our recliner and sing in our hearts? Because we love one another. 
And we need one another. And our worship is intended to increase one another and enhance one another and benefit one another and bless one another. This is about love, brothers and sisters. This is about whether or not we care about each other and encourage each other. You see, there's a lot of times where I need your song. There's a lot of days in which we have to borrow one another's praise, isn't there? You see, you're going through the midst of a tragedy, one that you didn't see coming, one that you didn't expect, one that you can't calculate the the impact of it on you. It's burying you. It's hunting you down. It's destroying you from the inside out. And you come to the church, and you're just a shell. And the the difficulties of life have just beaten the life out of you. Your lungs feel like they're all fixing to collapse without oxygen. But then you look over, and you see a blessed brother or sister that went through something just as bad, maybe even worse as what you're going through. And their hands are lifted high to heaven, and their voices are crying out to the glory of God. And in that moment, you realize that God is still faithful, and God will still see you through, because he saw her through, and him through, and him through. And in that moment, your brother or sister, in their worship, in their passion for Jesus, lifts your head. And in that moment, they lift your spirit. See, we need one another. We need to borrow one another's songs sometimes. We need to borrow one another's praise sometimes. Every time we sing, with all of life spinning around us, every time we stop and sing, we are stopping to say that in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the mountaintop, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, God is glorious. God is in control. God is sovereign. And my allegiance is to him. And when we sing out loud, when we pour out our voices, we are attesting to the rest of the congregation, we have a glorious God. We have a reigning God. We have a trustworthy God. Let's sing together. And let me give a secondary application here. Some of you, the Lord has gifted with a beautiful voice. Some of us, he hasn't. (laughs) Amen? Some of you, the Lord has gifted with a beautiful voice. And he gave you a beautiful voice, not just so that you could sing at home in the shower. He gave you a beautiful voice, not just so that you could sing alone in the car. He gave you a beautiful voice so that you might be the lifter of the head of his people. He gave you a beautiful voice that you might be the lifter of the spirit of the downtrodden. He gave you a beautiful spirit that you might encourage and enhance and improve and beckon his people to his throne to proclaim his glory. See, the the praise team is not about rehearsal. The praise team is not about a microphone. The praise team is about the glory of God and the love that you have for God's people to want to bring them into worship, to lift their heads to the heavens. Some of you need to be on the praise team. You need to join. I, I just I had this dream of having like six people up here every Sunday morning singing their hearts out to God, 
singing so loud that you can't pick out one voice from the other voice. Because that, to me, is the image of God. If I was just to press that further, and I'm just to make John uncomfortable or something here, like, I see a choir back here. Y'all, y'all, y'all with me? Man, can y'all just see that? Just a choir, I mean, rocking down, man. Hands lifted, praising to the glory of God. But you know what? We got to have voices. Voices. And the Lord has gifted some of you with voices so that you might encourage us, so that we might borrow your song, so that you might lift up our spirits. You know the biggest obstacle to us going to a second service? The biggest obstacle to us to multiplying, to having a second service, is having enough people to lead worship through music. It's the biggest obstacle that we have. Brothers and sisters, this is about love. This is about passion. This is not about rehearsal. This is not about waking up early. This is not about going through some motions. This is about you using what God has poured into you to lift the hearts of his people. So first, we see that we will worship God together. Secondly, we see in verse 20 that we will be thankful to God for one another. That we will be thankful to God for one another. Now, Verse 20 reads, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the word everything there is more literally translated as the word all. So much so that the New International Translation would translate this, not the New International, New English Translation would translate this as saying, we, give, we always give thanks for one another. For all, for all the people, for all the members of the church, for everyone, right? I think that fits the context back better because verse, uh, verse 18 or verse 19, he's talking about one another. Verse 21, he's talking about one another. So it would make more sense that verse 20, he's talking about one another. So I think that's what he's saying here is that if you are spirit-filled, you will always give thanks to God for one another. You will give thanks to God for your brothers and sisters in the church. Now, you need some context for what's happening in, happening in Ephesus. Ephesus, much like our friends in Salt Lake City, um, are ruled by a despicable cult. An abhorrent cult. A cult that is just deranged and demented and perverted in every way that you can imagine. But the economic viability for a large percentage of the people in Ephesus was dependent upon this cult. That they would sell things that were used in cultic worship. That they would, they would offer products that were needed by the pagan worshiper to go to this pagan temple and pay homage to him there. People would travel from far and wide to come to Ephesus to see the splendor of this temple. But what happened when the gospel got turned loose in Ephesus is people began abandoning the cult. As they begin to take hold of Jesus, they begin to abandon all of the pagan cultic practices that they had always seen. And it made people angry. You start messing with people's money, they get crazy. They get crazy. And people in Ephesus were going crazy. So to become a Christian in Ephesus was to openly embrace a life of misery was to openly embrace a life of turmoil, openly embrace a life that where people were always going to say, you are going to be the fall of our city. You are going to be the fall of my livelihood. You are going to be responsible. So the Ephesian Christians were losing their friends. And the Ephesian Christians were being betrayed by their families. All they had was one another. 
all they had was one another. They're in the midst of misery. They're in the midst of abandonment. They're in the midst of betrayal. And all they have is each other. And so what Paul is saying is in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of such great loss that you've experienced, be thankful for each other. Experience gratitude for one another, that you are not alone. How is it that we are going to endure? How is it that we are going to persevere in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity? In one hand, we have to hold on to the promises of God. And in the second hand, we have to hold on to one another. That's how we're going to make it. We're going to make it by having the promises of God, the fountain that never runs dry in this hand, and in the other hand, having the back of our brother and sister that will not betray us and will not abandon us and needs us to help them persevere as well. That's how we're going to survive. That's how we're going to make it. But the truth is, is that we can't have gratitude when we don't have relationship. Did you hear me? We can't have gratitude where we don't have relationship. We can't be thankful for one another if we don't know one another. We can't be thankful for one another if we're not bearing burdens for each other and involved in each other's lives. I'm calling us Iron City. Let's go deep with each other. Let's go deep with each other. Let me tell you what my dream is for our church. My dream for our church, we are a church family, and my dream is is that our family would become friends. Megan and I want to build our home. We've talked so much about this. But we want to build our home that wherever the Lord takes Gracie and Sarah, who's coming Tuesday, by the way, if you guys want to pray. Amen. All right, or at least by Tuesday. But wherever God takes Gracie and Sarah, that their hearts would long to be home again. Perhaps they don't come home, but their hearts want to. That even during their teenage years, that they would want to bring their friends to our house. Because though we're a a family, and though there is certainly structure and discipline that is uh, obligated to the parental responsibility, that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, and and if the Lord tarries and we all grow up together, that we would be a family that is friends with one another. Isn't that more beautiful than a family of obligation? That's what I want for our church, y'all. I want friends. I want friends. I want people that vacation together. People that that watch movies together. People that watch ball games together. People that spend time together. Not out of obligation, but out of joy. That our hearts are longing for one another. I want us to go deep with each other. To be vulnerable with each other. To know our our weaknesses and our strengths. To know our difficulties and our struggles. I want us to spend time with each other outside of the walls on Sunday morning. I want, us to, I want our groups to do things outside of the classroom. I want our D groups spending time in one another's homes. I want, I want us being friends with each other. That's how we'll persevere. That's what's going to give us the joy to carry on. That's what's going to allow us to grow in the faith is if we have one another. If we're friends with one another. This morning, I don't know how many of you feel connected and how many of you feel disconnected. I imagine that there's some of both. If we have the responsibility to go and seek the disconnected, if we are connected, and if we're disconnected, to seek to be connected. We can't be, you cannot be connected at Iron City if you slip in every week at 1017, sit on the back row, and slip right out at 1030. You're not going to be connected. It's not because we don't love you. It's not because we don't want to know you. It's because we can't. 
We can't. I was a youth pastor. So often, I would get this all the time. Little Johnny's just not connected. He just doesn't feel connected. So I'd call. All right, hey, we're going, we're going skiing, you know, like in Gatlinburg. We're going to all spend time. The whole focus is really, we're going to do some teaching at night, but really the whole focus is being connected. Well, he just don't like to travel away from mama. Okay. Hey, I, I've, got a, I've got a small group leader that wants to, wants to hang out with Johnny. He's got a group of guys that are actually going to go. Well, you know, he just don't feel comfortable around them. Johnny's not going to connect. Let's just get real. Let's befriend each other. Let's go deep with each other. Let's be, be in each other's lives. Let's bear one another's burdens. There are people here that don't have a single relative in the state of Alabama. They need one another. There are people here that don't have a single friend in Calhoun County that they can call in a crisis. They need you. There are people that don't have a place to eat Thanksgiving. A pl- people that don't have a place to celebrate Christmas. They need you. We need one another. We have to be in this together. We are a church family that will be friends with one another. Lastly, Paul says to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence Christ. As Christians, we are people that live submitted. When we came to Christ, we submitted ourselves to the cross. When we came to Christ, we submitted ourselves willfully and joyfully to his lordship, to his leadership in our lives. And so now, as Christians, we are to live a life of mutual submission with one another. Of mutual submission. So we are all submitted to Christ. We revere Christ. Reverence is always the healthy uh, starting place for submission. Marriage, employment, church, whatever. Christ, reverence is always the healthy place for the beginning of submission. But we submit to one another mutually because of our joy in Christ. Because of our love for Christ. Because of our passion for Christ. We bring ourselves underneath the discipleship of other Christians. We bring ourselves underneath the authority of the church. We bring ourselves underneath the accountability of other people being able to speak into our lives. We bring ourselves underneath the preaching of God's word, responding to it, hearing it, receiving it, applying it. I think the picture that's really in Paul's mind here is John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, when Jesus gives the new commandment, how does he give it? Jesus ties a towel around his waist. And he goes from disciple to disciple to disciple. And he scrubs their filthy feet. See, what Paul is calling all of us to is Paul is calling us to lower ourselves to one another's feet. Paul is calling us to submit to one another in service. To do the dirty work for one another. To be in the dirty moments with one another, to be in the difficult moments with one another, to go through the struggles with one another, to honor one another, to encourage one another through this, to serve in the church, to serve in the body, to strengthen the body. I wonder this morning, for an outsider looking in, for somebody that doesn't know us from anybody else on the street, do people know who we serve because of the way that we serve one another? Would people know, if they knew anything about Jesus, that we are like him because of the way 
that we love one another. Iron City, I want us to be a church where we belong with each other, where we enjoy each other, where we go deep with each other, where we call one another deeper into worship because Christ is worth it and we revere him. Let us pray together.